Leviticus chapter 10 brings to a close a three-chapter, eight-day story arc that presented for us some incredible highs, followed by one devastating low. In chapter 8, Moses calls out Aaron and his sons from the congregation of Israel. He clothes them in the priestly garments, performs the necessary rituals outlined for their ordination, and then he commands that they stay in the tabernacle for seven days to complete their consecration before the Lord. Leviticus 9 then opens on the eighth day following this week with these men, Aaron and his sons, coming forth from the tabernacle with this tent of meeting being officially open for business. As such, Aaron and his sons make the appropriate offerings for themselves, after which they offer them the burnt and the grain, the peace, the sin offerings for the people. With bated breath, Israel looks on as chapter 9 closes with this awesome scene of the glory of the Lord appearing and fire coming forth, consuming the burnt offering. In response to this, the people shout with joy and they worship. As all of this is happening, chapter 10 then opens with an immediate shift from this dramatic scene back onto the activities of the priests that were occurring within the tabernacle itself. We read, Leviticus 10 verse 1, that Nadab and Abihu, the two oldest sons of Aaron, so they're acting as priests here, they took censers, put fire in it, incense on it, and they offered profane fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. So fire went out from the Lord and devoured them, and they died before the Lord. On their very first day on the job, and one sensational instance, two-fifths of the entire priesthood is incinerated as these two of Aaron's oldest sons are devoured by fire coming from the Lord. Now, realizing the seriousness of what was happening, Moses kind of jumps back into the fray, commands Aaron and his sons, the two remaining ones, not to mourn. Didn't want to communicate to the people that in somehow God striking the older two dead was wrong. Can't mourn, fellas. Instead, you guys kind of have to just keep on keeping on. In fact, because the anointing is on you, you have a task you've begun that you now need to finish. So don't mourn, stay stoic, and just keep on keeping on. Guys, you got to finish. If you don't, there might be serious consequences. Now, understandably, and kind of the fog and the confusion of everything that's happening, Aaron's two younger sons, men by the name of Eleazar and Ithamar, they, they end up in the process of it. And you can understand, their two older brothers have just been consumed by fire from the Lord, but they, they mess up some of the protocols of the sin offering. And this causes Moses, especially in light of what's happened, to come unhinged. He comes unglued. He issues a stern rebuke. And in response, chapter 10 closes with Aaron kind of interceding, coming to Moses and saying, Mo, bro, you need to take a chill pill. We've never done the priest thing before. I've lost two sons in the process. Can we just kind of calm down? Of which Moses is like, you make a point. And the chapter closes. Now, as you're reading through Leviticus, so you've worked your way through these three chapters, this narrative, and you transition from tense events 
into a series of now dietary guidelines laid out in chapter 11. So you go from chapter 10, it's crazy, it's intense, it's passionate, it's, it's a moment, it's dramatic, and then you get to the next chapter and whip. I mean, I mean the pivot is hard and it's kind of odd. What, what makes it even stranger, going from these events now to dietary guidelines, is that what closes in chapter 10, this narrative, is later picked up again, almost seamlessly, in chapter 16. Just look very quickly. The first few verses of Leviticus 16 open. Now the Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron, when they offered profane fire before the Lord and died, chapter 10. And the Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron your brother not to come at just any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat, which is on the ark, lest he die. For I will appear in the cloud above the mercy seat. Though we'll address these particular instructions when we get to chapter 16 in the coming weeks. But following the deaths of Nadab and Abihu, God gives Aaron, the high priest, a, a set of very specific instructions for an occurrence that would happen one day a year. When the high priest would go behind the veil, where no human was allowed to go, and would make offerings there in the presence of God on behalf of all the people, this one day will become known as the Day of Atonement. And so chapter 16 outlines the Day of Atonement, picking up thematically from the events of chapter 10. That being said, that's not where we land here. We're now in chapter 11. In fact, it'll be several chapters that we get there. Now, aside from the interesting components here, as we turn our focus onto five chapters, 11, 12, 13, 14, and 15, inserted seemingly into this larger narrative, as you're processing that, the first question you have to just ask is why? If the events of chapter 10 get picked up in chapter 16, why not just like keep rolling with the story? Why put these chapters into the narrative in this place? Why insert them? In fact, the answer to that question will be very enlightening. In fact, the answer to the question will explain or it will establish a context for what God's actually seeking to accomplish in these particular chapters. Look back for just a moment at Leviticus 10, specifically beginning with verse 8. And, and you'll notice something interesting. That in the, in the midst of all of this chaos, following the deaths of Nadab and Abihu, the Lord comes to Aaron, speaks to Aaron specifically. And he says something very interesting. Look at it. He says, Do not drink wine or intoxicating drink when you go into the tabernacle of meeting, lest you die. It shall be a statue forever throughout your generations. Now notice, that you may distinguish between holy and unholy, between unclean and unclean, and that you may teach the children of Israel all of the statutes by which the Lord has spoken to them by the hand of Moses. Now aside from the fact that God's prohibiting the priests from drinking while on the job. In these verses, something else happens. Worth noting. In these verses, God, in the context of everything that's happening, He adds two new responsibilities to the job description of the priests. In addition to taking care of the business associated with all the activities of the tabernacle, the sacrifices and whatnot, the priests here are also commanded to do two things. Notice, 
First, they're to distinguish between holy and unholy, between unclean and clean. Number two, they're then commanded their responsibility to then teach now the children of Israel all of the statutes which the Lord had commanded them. Distinguish holy and unholy, clean and unclean, and then teach the people what these distinguishing characteristics are. With these two additional responsibilities in mind, it then makes total sense why God would take a break from the action in order to do what? In order to articulate to the priests, as well as by extension the people, what is holy and unholy, what is clean and unclean, concerning a wide array of various topics. This is why these chapters are inserted into the storyline. It's the context established there in Leviticus 10. In fact, if you're a note taker, you can just jot these down. It kind of gives you a blueprint for where we'll go. In chapter 11, God will define what was and wasn't permissible to eat, dietary guidelines. In chapter 12, God will establish a very specific way in which women were to be treated following childbirth, whether it was a male or a female. In Leviticus 13 and 14, God will lay out a detailed process whereby the priests were to diagnose leprosy, handle infectious skin diseases, as well as how to declare someone to be clean or fit to return to society. Finally, in chapter 15, God will even get into the way that bodily discharges were to be handled. Doesn't that sound exciting? Now, it goes without saying, but the very fact that God would interrupt this narrative to enumerate on these issues, coupled with the reality that the subject matter will demand five chapters and 204 verses, some of the longest chapters in all of the Bible, we'll find here. What that tells us is that what we're about to examine, while most people just skirt right over it, is in actuality by just the amount God spends on it, it's important. He stops a narrative to address these things, and then he spends a lot of time addressing them, which means that what he's trying to get across, what he's communicating it's not trivial, it's not trite, it's important. It demands our careful attention. Now before we dive into the text, I need to establish, I think it'll be helpful, to establish two big ideas that undergird not just chapter 11, but all of these chapters. In fact, these two big ideas will additionally undergird, uh, they'll aid our understanding of where all of the ideas we'll read ultimately land. Like what's the whole big point of them all? The first big idea is that there is an undeniable component in these mandates that were frankly revolutionary. I mean, really radical. Not only did God's commands to Israel in these five chapters contrast the contemporary approach of that day and age, but they actually transcended man's collective understanding of the physical world at that point in time. Whether it was the practical benefits of not eating certain animals because they were more susceptible to fostering human illnesses, or creating a radical approach to childbirth designed to aid in a woman, specifically her postpartum recovery, or addressing infectious diseases to mitigate their spread through communities, to the realization that bodily discharges actually present serious health risks, if not handled appropriately, all of these laws, all of these mandates, everything we find recorded in Leviticus 11, 12, 13, 14, and 15 were not instituted 
to limit your enjoyment of life. They were instituted to protect life itself. With this understanding in mind, some have argued that Christians should still obey all of these commandments because of their revolutionary presentation and and the fact that they're just relevant. My answer to that argument is yes and no. And I'm not dodging. Like, there are absolutely certain concepts established in these chapters that we would be wise as Christians to adhere to. That said, there are other prohibitions God institutes that are simply no longer applicable, no longer relevant because our society is much different today than it was back then. For example, the wisdom of quarantining an individual who has an infectious disease in order to prohibit the spread of that disease in a community, we should obey that. Like that that idea remains just as applicable today as it did in the days of Moses. And yet, because we've developed disinfectants and powerful cleaning products, we no longer also have to completely demolish the infected person's home. So there's a component to it where it's like, this is totally applicable. Quarantine, isolation. But we also don't have to destroy the person's house additionally. Not eating rats or bats. I I hate to break it to you. Not eating rats or bats or the food or water that they might have contaminated. That's as astute an observation today as it was then. You had bat on the mind for lunch. Sorry. And yet, the controlled environment by which we raise pigs or the development of refrigeration, freezing technologies... Well, it eliminates the health risks of eating pork or enjoying lobster. As we work our way through the the text over the coming weeks, I'm going to take time. I'll make these distinctions as we come across them. Now, aside from the practical benefits, so two big ideas. Aside from the practical benefits of these mandates, it's also important to keep in mind. Don't miss this. This is important. These five chapters still fall within the first half of Leviticus, that govern our relationship with God. As you transition from the first ten chapters of Leviticus into this new section, you can't help but notice there is a shift, an interesting one, away from the activities of the tabernacle of meeting and onto the daily life of the people. There's almost a shift of locale. The idea here is that our interactions with God, as the people of God, were not just limited to a tent of meeting. Though, doesn't that have a New Testament context? Because we are the tent of meeting. God is concerned with all of our lives, every part of our lives, our daily lives. It's interesting, but twice in Leviticus 11, we're going to read how God instructed the people to be holy as I am holy. In chapter 11, he does this in direct relation to the food that we eat. You see, while there was a tangible blessing behind all of these various instructions, the people's obedience to these commands had a direct correlation to their relationship with the divine. In the Hebrew, the word we find translated in Leviticus 10 verse 10, the passage we looked at, 
This word distinguish, to distinguish between what is holy and unholy, between what is clean and unclean. This word distinguish in the Hebrew, it's the word badal. Now what's fascinating about this word is that in the vast majority of instances you find badal translated into English, it's not translated as distinguish. In fact, the majority of the time it's either to divide or to separate. Like the idea of badal was so essential to the creation narrative. In Genesis 1, you'll find that word mentioned five times. It's just one example. The first mention in Genesis chapter 1, verse 4, God saw the light, that it was good, and God divided, bedal, the light from the darkness. Now the reason this idea is significant is that sometimes when examining these chapters, we fall into the trap of falsely equating something that is unholy or unclean, as being inherently sinful. I think this is a mistake that ends up fostering a lot of unnecessary confusion. Again, in the Hebrew, the words we have clean and unclean are simply descriptive terms designating something or someone as either being pure and permissible or impure and prohibited. By the way, that distinction is made within a very specific context that God establishes. Let me give you an example of this. The classification, as we'll see this morning, of animals as being unclean or clean is presented within the context of God distinguishing for us the animals that were permissible to eat from those that were prohibited. In making the distinctions, God was not defining some animals in the kingdom as inherently good or better than others. It's not as though some were good and some were bad. In chapter 12, I'll give you another one, another example of this. We'll read how a woman was unclean for a period of time following the birth of a child. In making this distinction, though, God is not declaring the woman to be sinful, as if there was something inherently sinful about bearing a child. No, not at all. Instead, God was making a designation that in her current state, after giving birth, well, she needed to be separated from what was normal in her life for a period of time. In fact, she needed to be separated and prohibited from doing certain activities. Why? To protect life so she could recover. It was for her benefit. Unclean didn't describe the woman's moral standing. Aside from the practical value of these distinctions protecting life, the intertwining of the people's adherence to them within their holiness, it's fascinating. In the Hebrew, the word holy, simple definition, It means to set something apart for a particular purpose. That's that's all the word means. To set apart for a reason. So when God says, I am holy, what is he saying? He's saying he's separate. He's distinct. He's different from everything else in the universe on purpose. Now don't forget, God is taking a group of former slaves, the Israelites. Slaves he's just delivered from Egypt. He's led them to Sinai, put this tent in the middle of them, and he's creating them through all of these things into a new people 
who would demonstrate to the entire world that there was a better way, a better way to live, a better way to be human. Because God, and this process, wanted them to be holy, separate for a purpose, as He was holy, separate from a purpose, separate from the world, for the purpose of being a light unto the world. God now defines. He helps. He puts skin to the bones of what this life looks like. And to do that, he distinguishes, God distinguishes things that were clean or pure and permissible from the things that were not clean, things that were unclean or impure and prohibited. In many ways, and if I could just take a little bit of a creative license, God in these chapters, what we know as the holiness code, He's articulating the following message to the children of Israel. It's as though God is coming down. He's saying, guys, in order for me to create you into a people, a holy people, separate, distinct, different from the world, I want you to know it's okay for you to do this, but not that. Like, you can enjoy as this people distinct from the world to be a light unto the world. You can enjoy these things. But I'm going to distinguish those things from them. Like, I want you, when it comes to like how you operate and how you live, I want you to handle situations this way, but not the way that everyone else does. That's, that's in its core what God is accomplishing, which is why you can then understand it's why it's so, so important. Now, what's interesting about God's commands for the Hebrew people to be holy as I am holy, in the midst of directives distinguishing the clean from the unclean, and this is central, is that it tells us none of these things were really about doing something in particular. And they were more about the people being something distinct. Let me repeat that because don't miss it. All of these distinguishing characteristics, all these directives, all, all of this stuff in these chapters were about not the people doing something in particular, but about being something distinct. Again, be holy as I am holy. God wants us to be separate from the world for the very reason God is. Here's a general truth most people forget. You can't do holiness. Be holy. It's not do holy. Holiness is something that naturally flows from that which is already holy, by definition. Think about it this way. The Hebrews' identity as the people of God was not founded or predicated upon their obedience. Instead, their obedience manifested from their new identity. In fact, the identity of the children of Israel as the people of God had already been established before any of these things had even been articulated. They were already called the people of God. Not only that, but the burnt offering had already been made, and that offering had already been accepted on their behalf to make atonement for sin before God utters a word about what you eat or don't eat. So what was God doing here? I'm convinced, and again, we're looking at these things from kind of the 10,000-foot perspective. But I'm convinced in giving all of these specific and detailed mandates pertaining to their daily lives, 
God was seeking to take holiness, the idea of holiness, out of the abstract. Like God wanted his people to live so differently from the world around them that they'd never forget they were different from the world around them. Like all these laws were given, not with the intention of bestowing to them an identity, They were given to remind them always of what their identity was. They were different. They were holy. They were separate. And all of these things emphasize that. Now, the reason that this larger view of what's, again, known as the holiness code is so helpful is that then you can see how the new covenant doesn't abandon the ideal at all. Christians, while Christians are not required, we're not required to obey any of these mandates. The idea or the concept of obedience to God, which leads to a distinction with the world, manifesting from my identity in Christ, it remains the same. You and I, my friend, we're not holy because we choose to live a certain way. That's not what makes us holy. Jesus said it's not what you put into a man that defiles a man, but what comes out. Instead, the way we live is holy, should be, because we're already holy. We've already been called. We've already been given a new identity. We're already the people of God. Now let's live that way. Leviticus chapter 11. We're going to work our way through this text. Buckle up. And we're going to close with some more specific observations about the dietary restrictions. Verse 1. Now the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron. If you're a note taker, you might want to jot down that Aaron is included in this. I don't know why. It's just interesting. He's not always included. So the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying to them, Speak to the children of Israel, saying, These are the animals which you may eat among all the animals that are on the earth. What we're going to find is that God will classify animals, which ones were okay to eat, which ones weren't. These instructions are repeated in Deuteronomy chapter 14. Among the animals, whatever divides the hoof, having cloven hooves, and chewing the cud, that you may eat. The two general criteria for animals okay to eat were one, they had to have a cloven hoof, or hoof that was split into two separate toes. The second criteria is that the animal had to eat by chewing the cud. Or they would eat, chew it up, swallow it, regurgitate it, eat it again. The animal was vegetarian. And the way that they consumed their food, this process of chewing the cud, ensured that the meat that resulted was well processed. Uh, Side note, there are a lot of reasons that you might choose to live a non-meat lifestyle. And I get that. But don't make that decision a moral one because God permits right here the eating of meat. The other thing I would add, and this is a total side point, is this phrase, chew the cud, chewing the cud. I love it. I love this phrase. In the Hebrew, the word that we find is the same word that the psalmist uses all the time, that we meditate on the word of God. Literally, we chew the cud. We take an idea and we we chew on it. And we swallow it. And we spit it back up. And then we chew it again. And we, we... we're processing it. We're digesting. Chew to cud. I know you wanted to know that. Love the picture, right? 
Verse 4, nevertheless. So these are what you can eat, nevertheless. These you shall not eat among those that chew the cud or those that have cloven hooves. So these are the exceptions. The camel. Because it chews the cud but does not have cloven hooves. It's unclean. The rock hyrax, which is also known as the coney, it chews the cud but does not have cloven hooves. It's unclean. Don't eat it. The hare, which is the rabbit, it chews the cud but does not have cloven hooves. It's unclean to you. And the swan or the pig, though it divides the hooves, having cloven hooves, yet does not chew the cud, it's unclean. Their flesh you shall not eat, and their carcasses you shall not touch. They are unclean to you. It's worth noting the idea behind unclean and clean animals was not new. According to Genesis chapter 7, the Lord uses these exact same designations in his instructions to Noah. This has led many scholars to conclude that the dietary guidelines had already existed within Hebrew culture, being passed down probably whether written or through oral traditions until they're finally codified here in Leviticus 11. So they had an understanding already of what they could and couldn't. It's just being recorded. These, verse 9, you may eat of all that are in the water. So now we have a new classification. Water animals, what can we eat? Whatever in the water has fins and scales, so there's your criteria, whether in the seas or in the rivers, fresh or salt water, that you may eat. Fins and scales. But all in the seas or in the rivers that do not have fins and scales, all that move in the water, or any living thing which is in the water, they are an abomination to you. Uh, eight times in this passage, in this chapter, we'll find this phrase or a variation of it. This is an abomination to you. It's an abomination. I like that word abomination. The idea in the Hebrew is very simple. It's that it's detestable or not good to eat. Don't eat it. It's bad. It's the idea. They shall be an abomination to you. You shall not eat their flesh, but you shall regard their carcasses also as an abomination. Whatever in the water does not have fins or scales, they shall be an abomination to you. And this is one of those moments I'm glad I'm no longer under the law. In addition to being a pig-eating Gentile that loves Jesus, this list prohibits things that just stink. Like, for example, uh, what's excluded, like what we can't eat by this guideline, shrimp, can't eat it, lobster, Crab, oysters, clams, crawfish, squid, eels. I'm okay with the eels. I've never eaten eel, but never had a, a real hankering for it. Sharks, whales, dolphins, as well as bottom feeders like catfish. Yeah, bummer. Not only, by the way, do these animals carry with them higher risks of bacteria because of the way that they actually eat, but the reason that they're prohibited in the context of when they are is that we can eat them because we have the ability to preserve food well with refrigeration and ice, etc. But these animals are difficult to preserve if they're not eaten immediately, which causes a greater risk of, of infections and whatnot. They spoil very quickly. So God's like, stay away from that stuff. Verse 13. These you shall regard as an abomination among the birds. So we've got animals, and now we've got, we've got fish and whatnot. Now we've got birds. These are an abomination. They shall not be eaten. They are an abomination. Getting the point? Don't eat them. Bad. The eagle. The vulture. 
the buzzard. Now, as we go through this, I, I should add that we're trying to understand what the animal is via its ancient Hebrew word. Again, none of us are Hebrew. None of us are ancient Hebrews, uh, meaning that there is some difficulty in, in complexities, like our translations might be different, um, as to what the word describing, the, like what the animal actually is. So we get English translations. Some of them are good. Some of them are bad. For example, you have the buzzard. You have the kite. That's likely a type of hawk. The falcon after its kind. So generally, birds of prey we shouldn't eat. Every raven after its kind, the ostrich, the short-eared owl, the seagull, the hawk after its kind. Again, here, hawk is a very bad translation. In fact, there is no translation. Most scholars think that what's being referenced here is an extinct bird. The little owl, the fisher owl, the screech owl. Apparently, owls aren't good. The white owl, which is probably better translated the swan. The jackdaw, pelican. The carrier vulture, which was a type of eagle, the stork, the heron after its kind, the hoopy, and the bat. Um, clean birds are given kind of a more specific designation in Deuteronomy 14, but things that we could eat that fly would be birds like doves, quail, don't forget God gave them quail and manna, uh, pigeons, things that were permissible. Verse 20 all flying insects that creep on all fours shall be an abomination to you. So don't eat bugs. Yet these, if you, if you do have a hankering for bugs, these you can eat. Of every flying insect that creeps on all fours, those which have jointed legs above their feet with which to leap on the earth. Get a mental picture and you'll know what we're talking about. Grasshoppers. You can eat those. Specifically, the locust after its kind. This is um, in its ancient ancient uh, translation, probably the bald locust, um, as opposed to the locust with a toupee or a full head of hair. Um, additionally, the destroying locust. So if you see some locusts out there eating everything that you would eat, you can eat it. The cricket after its kind, the grasshopper after its kind, but all other flying insects which have four feet shall be an abomination to you. Don't eat them. Now, with verse 24, God starts to add some additional stipulations to the guidelines. By these you shall become unclean, Whoever touches the carcass of any of them shall be unclean until evening. Now, we're going to find the reference to evening a lot. Uh, don't forget that the Jewish understanding or mindset about the day, the evening was the beginning of a new day. Uh, evening and morning were the first day. And so about 6 p.m. at sunset was the start of a new day. So when we find evening, the idea is that uh, wait till the next day. Like you're unclean today, but tomorrow you're good. So that's what we'll find. Until evening, dead carcasses. Whoever carries part of the carcass of any of these things shall have to wash his clothes. They'll be unclean till evening. The carcass of any of the animal which divides the foot but is not cloven-hooved, does not chew the cud, it's unclean. Anyone who touches it shall be unclean. Verse 27. And whatever goes on its paws among all kinds of animals that go on all fours, they are unclean to you. So don't eat your dog or your cat or cats, uh, bears, also not you know, wild game. Mostly what we find referenced here is carnivores. They're unclean. Whoever touches any of the carcass of these animals shall be unclean till evening. Whoever carries any such carcass shall wash his clothes, be unclean till evening, is unclean to you. Verse 29, 
These also shall be unclean to you among the creeping things that creep on the earth. Again, you would, uh, you would conclude that a creeping thing is really good at creeping. These things creep me out. Don't eat the mole. A probably better translation is the weasel. The mouse. The large lizard after its kind. Which is, again, a lot of scholars think the tortoise. Don't eat the gecko, the ferret. The monitor lizard, which is a chameleon, the sand reptile, the sand lizard, which is probably a snail, and the chameleon, which then is probably a mole. Again, it's hard to ascertain exactly what's being referred to specifically. These are unclean to you among all that creep. Whoever touches them when they are dead shall be unclean until evening. Beginning with verse 32, we're given more stipulations really aimed at prohibiting the spread of bacteria and disease from the unclean animals. Verse 32, anything on which any of them, the previous classification, creeping things that creep, these animals, anything of them that falls, so when they fall on something, whether they are dead, when they are dead, they shall be unclean, whether it is an item of wood or clothing or skin or sack, whatever the item is in which any work is done, that item, if one of these animals fall on it, shall be put in water. So you got to clean it. It's unclean until the next day when it dries out. Then it shall be clean. Any earthen vessel into which any of these animals falls, you shall break it. It's no longer usable. Whatever is in it, that happens to be in the pot, is also unclean. Got to get rid of it. And such a vessel, any edible food upon which water falls with the animal is unclean. And any drink that may be, may be drunk from it, becomes unclean. So if you find one of these animals in one of these vessels with your food, eh, don't eat the food and get rid of the vessel. Verse 35, And everything on which a part of any of the carcass falls shall be unclean, whether it is an oven or a cooking stove. It shall be broken down, for they are unclean and shall be unclean to you. Nevertheless, a spring, so if this is, this is a water source where you've got flowing water, or a cistern, specifically a cistern in which there's plenty of water, or, or enough water to dilute any dangerous bacterias, well, if one of the animals falls in it, it, it's, it will still be clean. But whatever you use to fish the thing out, well, it will be unclean. If a part of any such carcass falls on any planting seed, which is to be sown, this is verse 37, well, it remains clean. But, if water is already on the seed, so the germination process has already kind of begun, and if any of the carcass falls on it, now it's, it's unclean. You've got to get rid of it. Verse 39, if any animal which you may eat dies, so an example of this would be a clean animal, like a lamb or a sheep, in your field it dies. So you, you come across it as dead. He who touches its carcass will be unclean until morning. Again, the bacteria spread and whatnot. He who eats of its carcass shall wash his clothes and be unclean till evening. He who carries its carcass shall wash his clothes and be unclean till evening. <laughs> Back to creeping things, verse 41. And every creeping thing that creeps on the earth shall be an abomination. It shall not be eaten. Whatever crawls on its belly, these are snakes. Whatever goes on all fours or whatever has many feet among all creeping things that creep on the earth. So centipedes. Again, I know you're bummed out. That centipede salad sounded delicious. These you shall not eat, for they are an abomination. You shall not make yourselves abominable, 
with any creeping thing that creeps, nor shall you make yourselves unclean, lest you be defiled by them. We're almost done. Verse 44 begins a bit of a summary of the chapter. For I am the Lord your God, you shall therefore consecrate yourself, and you shall be holy, for I am holy. Neither shall you defile yourself with any creeping thing that creeps on the earth, for I am the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. This is the law of the animals and the birds, and of every living creature that moves in the waters, and of every creature that creeps on the earth, to distinguish between the unclean and the clean, and between the animal that may be eaten and the animal that may not be eaten. Let's close with just a few observations about these dietary guidelines. First, there's no question, number one, that God cares about our physical health. Like, in fact, as you dive into the details of this chapter on your own, I'm sure you're excited to do that, it will become more and more evident as you study, well, why can't I eat that? That all of the restrictions manifest from a man-centered concern. Like, as the Creator... God is going on the record here, letting us know, humanity, what's good and bad to eat. Like every single restriction, every prohibition, every added stipulation about what could or couldn't be eaten was designed to help man avoid consuming or coming in contact with things that posed a higher risk to health and wellness, well-being. Again, God wasn't giving humanity a list of laws here, restrictions to lessen your enjoyment of life, but to fundamentally protect your ability to enjoy living. Well, I want to eat bat. Go for it and get sick. Second, you'll notice God ordered the animals here into clear classifications, allowing for the development of variations within each family to take place through adaptations. I know I'm going to get real geeky here. Within the Genesis record, provided in, in Genesis 1, the creation account, the descriptions of the animals that were given there is very vague. Like for example, on the fifth day, we're told that God said, let the waters abound with the abundance of living creatures. Let birds fly above the earth across the firmament. So God created great sea creatures and living things that moves with which the waters abounded according to their kind and every winged bird according to its kind. That's as specific as we're given. In fact, on day six, God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to its kind. Cattle, classification, creeping thing, beasts of the earth, according to their kind. It was so, and then God created humanity, man. Now, what makes Leviticus 11 so, so interesting, it's worthy of note for a totally different reason, is that it actually does provide for us the very first comprehensive listing in all of Scripture of the various subcategories of the animal kingdom. It's the details Genesis didn't give us. Not only are mammals divided into those with cloven hooves, who chew the cud, those who don't, and ones with paws. But within the passage that we just read, you, you notice just this incredible diversity, this listing of various fish and different birds and insects, creeping things, it's astounding. Aside from this, it's also worth noting that like Genesis, we find a same phrase, Genesis language, which is why this is important, again and again and again repeated about the animals, don't we? That they were each according to its kind. In creation, God limited, He designed animals to specifically develop variations 
through adaptations, but he limited that process to their particular kind. There is no evidence, at least scripturally, or I'll add scientifically, of adaptations developing new families or kinds of animals. Variations within species and more specifics, but third, while man has been given dominion over all of creation, something that jumps out at me, that we've been given dominion over all things, including the animal kingdom. Again, you go back to the original mandates. It's clear from the text, though, that in this stewardship that we've been, that we've been given, not animals exist for us to kill and eat them. <laughs> I don't know if you noticed that. And, and, and again, you can study into why this is the way that it is on your own. But you'll, you'll see that the animals that are prohibited, there's often, aside from the health benefits for us, there's often other reasons at play as well. For example, some of those that were prohibited were more vulnerable to predators and had a greater risk for extinction. So God's like, don't eat birds of prey. Like, leave them alone. Enjoy them in other ways as they soar through the air. It's also worth noting that the permissible animals, you know, the, the majority of the ones we could eat, were also the animals that we could herd and we could raise specifically to be a food source. Beyond this, prohibiting carnivores as well as birds of prey were, were, it was wise. Both of these animals provided an essential ecological role in controlling more invasive species. Don't eat those animals because they, they eat the animals you don't want a lot of. Some population control. In addition, they eat the carcasses of dead animals that if just left to rot, pose significant health uh, you know, health risks. My point, as stewards over creation, we can and should enjoy all animals. We can eat them, but we shouldn't eat all of them. Before we wrap things up and kind of concluding, I want to just address the dietary guidelines, though, from kind of this broader idea presented within a New Testament context. I mentioned this passage earlier, but in Mark chapter 7, Jesus said that whatever enters a man from the outside cannot defile him. Again, a radical idea given to Jews in light of Leviticus 11. Jesus adds, because it doesn't enter his heart. So it doesn't defile him because it doesn't enter his heart. It enters his stomach and is eliminated, thus purified. Jesus then adds that what comes out of a man, not what comes in, but what comes out, that, that defiles him. In the end, the Jews had taken these ideas and they had twisted them in a lot of ways from their original meaning. Paul would write to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 8, verse 8, that food does not commend us to God. For neither if we eat are we better, nor if we do not eat are we the worse. In fact, there's this remarkable scene recorded for us in Acts chapter 10, where God, kind of in one swift motion, scraps the whole restrictions altogether. We're told that Peter became very hungry. So he's Simon the tanner. He's up on the house. He becomes hungry. He wants to eat. But they got to make his meal. And in the process of this, he falls into a trance and he sees heaven open and an object like a great sheet bound at four corners descend to him. In this sheet were all kinds of, and again, we get Leviticus language, four-footed animals of the earth, wild beasts, creeping things, birds of the air. And a voice came and said, 
Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, Not so, Lord, for I have never eaten anything common or unclean. A voice spoke to him again a second time. What God has cleansed, you must not call common. And to hammer it home, this happens a third time. Now, for the reasons we kind of referenced earlier, and in light of these passages, it's clear that the dietary guidelines established for the Jews in their context, their day and age, Leviticus 11, they're no longer applicable within our New Testament context, the New Covenant. Sure, as again mentioned, some of these prohibitions are timeless, and there's no question that keeping things sanitary when it comes to food is always relevant. So there's ideas here we carry forth, but the guidelines not, we're not dogmatic on. You know, as with other laws that we have found in Leviticus, to understand how they're applicable today, you've got to understand what God is accomplishing ultimately through them. So when you look at the dietary guideline, what law, what big idea is God hammering home here if it doesn't really matter what we eat anymore? It doesn't defile us. It doesn't make us right with God or not. You eat what you want. Get sick. That's fine. But it has no bearing on defilement or uncleanness or your relation to God. Enjoy that pork sandwich free of, of guilt. But what is the idea that still, like all of the laws, is established that's relevant? Huh. The law that's always true. Here it is. What is clean will always find itself defiled when it comes into contact with that which is unclean. And it never works the other way around. What is clean is always defiled by the unclean. But what's unclean is never made clean by coming in contact. You see how this is applicational? As we work our way through the world, we are made righteous before God. And when we talk about cleanness and uncleanness, again, remove it from the, the sin or not sin component. I'm right. My righteousness is sealed not by me, but by Jesus and what he did. But in regards to like picking up muck and dirt, that constant washing of the word, laying aside sin and weights that slow down my walk, as we work our way through the world, always remember, if you're the righteous and you're going to try to redeem the unclean, it's more likely you're just going to get dirtied in the process. It's a great tip to give to your sons about dating. But the application for all of us, it's wide-reaching. And that idea, the reason it exists, the reason it's a law, well, it's because of the dietary restrictions. What is clean is always defiled by what's unclean. That process never works in reverse. So, Father, Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for what it says.